All right, so welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast. We have another very interesting guest for you today, Dr. Mina Redkalkar. Um, she is a clinical and forensic psychologist by training. Um, also, she is the founder and CEO of New Spark Therapy, uh, where she is a sex and relationship specialist and therapist. Um, so welcome to the show. Very glad to have you here. And I know that you're going to bring a lot of value to the audience today. This podcast is brought to you by Zero Gravity Skin, a prolific leader in the aesthetic devices market, delivering anti-aging, complexion clearing, hair growth, and pain management solutions across the globe. Featuring the Perfectio X, a two-in-one device which treats both pain and signs of aging and is actively working to reverse cell damage accumulated over time. Also, the Relaxio, which provides damaged cells with the vital energy necessary to quickly renew and recover in the most optimal way. For more information, please visit zerogravityskin.com and use code DRDEREK30 to receive 30% off your purchase. Again, that's zerogravityskin.com, promo code DRDEREK30. Thanks for having me, Dr. Derek. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's start off with you have a very diverse background from forensic psychology, forensic psychology, getting your PhD um, to now owning your own business. So I kind of want to touch on all of that. How did you get to being an entrepreneur, you know, when you first started off in forensic psychology? So if you could just tell us kind of about your background, what led you to psychology, what led you to a career in medicine? Sure. Um, so in college, I picked my majors by taking a list and seeing what I was bad at. So it left me with three and then I picked two of them. So one was psychology and one was public health. And I, I don't know if that was fair, but you're 18. That's how you make decisions. And so I, I went with that and I was also bartending and realized that I wasn't sure in psychology, I didn't really think about therapy, but as a bartender, people were sharing all kinds of stuff with me. And I was 18 years old. And I thought, oh, this is a career. You can do something with it. <laughs> and then with sex therapy, I had a course on human sexuality and it was a wonderful class. I had never taken anything like that before. I am 35. I'm still waiting for the talk from my parents. It's not something we talked about <laughs> growing up. And um, I fainted in the class right as the professor put up a cross-section of a penis. And it was a, an anatomical diagram, nothing too racy. But it had nothing to do with the, with the actual picture. It was just my, uh, blood I, my blood pressure. I hadn't eaten up or something after practice that morning. And I passed out. And the professor, when I came to, he said, well, you can leave and I'll give you credit for attendance. And I wanted to stay. And I said, no, I want to learn more. And so I knew, okay, this is an academic subject. And I learned people can make a career out of it. So I was sold with sex therapy. And I got more mentorship and had some psychology related jobs along the way where somebody told me, hey, if you're not so sold on this research thing, don't get a PhD that's a long road. Why don't you get a master's degree and you can practice with that and get specialty training in sex therapy? So that's what I did. And with the forensic part, that was complete happenstance. So I, right after 
grad school. I had finished my master's degree in New York and I bought a one-way ticket to Miami. I saved enough for six weeks. Just wanted to be in Miami, wanted to be warm, not a cold weather person. And I bought a one-way ticket. And I told myself, if I don't get a job in six weeks, I'll head, I'll head back. And in week five, a job with benefits came through and it was working as a forensic social worker. And I was brand new to the field and quickly realized I loved it. But then in court, I realized that the stuff I wanted to do, I couldn't do without a PhD. So then another round of, of applications and five more years of school. And uh, yeah, so that's how that all came to be. That was a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, number one, you're one of the few PhDs that I've had on the show. Most of the people that I've had on so far have either gone to medical school or dental school or pharmacy school. So tell us about the course through becoming a PhD. What does that look like? Uh, to get a PhD, you actually don't need to get a master's degree first. I took the scenic route, but um, to get a PhD, you need a bachelor's degree. You need to take, uh, some schools I think might be more flexible about this now, but definitely had to take the GRE and standard applications with essays and all, all that usual stuff. But the difference between a PhD application and another type of application is you really have to make the case why you want to work with this specific professor and this specific person for five to seven years for low pay. The last part you don't have to put in there about the pay, but that is what <laughs> yeah. you're signing up for. Hey, that's that's like residency in yes. medical school. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you have to make a really specific case and uh, the PhD in clinical psych includes coursework, includes qualifying exams, uh, which is kind of the midway point, at which point you become a doctoral candidate, and then the dissertation, but you are also expected to do clinical work pretty much the whole time. And the uh, dissertation phase, that's the part that can get a little gray, right? So, you know, one thing about a medical school, you have four years, and if you pass your coursework, you progress year to year to year, and four years, you graduate. Now, it's not always like that in a PhD, correct? That dissertation correct. phase can go for a while, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It can go a nice long time. And all kinds of stuff can hold up data collection, can hold up the rounds of revisions. If somebody, you know, if you're working on a study and someone publishes an identical one, then you're not really adding to the science anymore. So you have to regroup. There are so, and, and also just the process of doing independent research and the discipline to write, all that kind of stuff can be roadblocks to people finishing. So I've met people who finish their PhDs in different fields in three or four years, and some mm -hmm. who finish in 10 to 12. And this could be a whole podcast about your relationship <laughs> with, your, with your mentor, right? As yes. a PhD, yes. because it's so important. If you don't have a good relationship with your PhD mentor, you could be holes from the start, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They, there's a big power difference there, and they kind of hold the keys to your future because they have to sign off on these things. And a lot of mentors are busy people, either working toward tenure or they are tenured and can be hard to reach. Some people are really hands-on, some people are really hands-off, and you don't always know till you start what kind of person or leadership style you're working with. 
even yeah. if you ask during the interview, you know, with anything, you don't know what it's like working right. with somebody till you're until maybe. you do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So number one, the way that we met, uh, Miss Mariko Gordon. If you haven't listened to her episode about financial literacy, definitely listen to that because she gave a lot of excellent information about your relationship with money um, and how it's important, not just about how you use your money and paying down debt and investing, but how your money makes you feel. Um, so after I spoke with her, I asked her about some of her, I said, do you have anyone that you feel will be a great fit for this podcast? And you're one of the people that she recommended. And in her introductory email, she mentioned some things and you mentioned some things. And I knew that it would definitely bring value uh, when we started to talk about your expectations of others or how you react or how you're affected by the expectations of others and talking about shame and guilt, which I think is something that, number one, you know, therapy can be a word that you're not supposed to really say. It's, it's like a really bad word in certain cultures. You know, and it's sometimes deemed a weakness, you know, even if you need to see a therapist, but mental health, we've been talking a lot about mental health, mental, mental fitness, mental toughness. If your mind is not in a good place, your body, it doesn't matter where you are, you're not going to be in your optimal state. So I think that, you know, I'm glad to have you here, number one, because these are topics that need to be discussed and it shouldn't be taboo number one, to seek help when you need it, because there's a lot of mental health issues uh, that from addiction to um, just all different addictions of all different forms that get dismissed or get just pushed away because you don't want to deal with, hey, I need to see a therapist. Um, so we really want to make this a common topic and a, com a common conversation, you know, not only that we're going to have today, but you can have with your families and your friends. Absolutely. And I would say most people have some hesitance about saying that they're seeing a therapist or about therapy in general. A lot of a lot of cultures, I mean, American culture, but certainly within that, I mean, my family's background, my parents are both from India. That's not something we talk about or hear. It's not something that's really acceptable. Um, and I work with really diverse people and most say that, yeah, therapy is pretty much a no-go in their house. So even when yeah. I ask about family mental health history, so when, you know, a physician, you could ask, what's your family medical history? And people will say, this person had a heart attack, this person has diabetes. With mental health, I don't ask what do does anything run in your family? I'll ask, has anybody been diagnosed with anything? But even if they're not, even if they never were, is there anybody in your family that you thought there was something? And I'll kind of mm -hmm. open it up that way. Mm -hmm. Sure. So let's talk about um, self-awareness and how self-awareness is linked to personal growth. And you know, to be able to be the best at, at your job how you need to be self-aware of yourself and whatever issues you might have. Self-awareness is something that I think a lot of people aspire to. And it's an incredibly challenging and evolving process. And with self-awareness, I think something that people do is equate it to personal goals and meeting them. 
I'd like to, something that is helpful when I talk about it with clients or just think about it myself is personal growth can absolutely include the way you show up in your relationships and your friendships at work. So often personal growth is very much, I need to do this. I need to eat better. I need to make more money. They might, or people might say, and I want to date because I haven't been putting that much effort into it. But that's still different than saying, I'm going to be open to feedback from people. I'm going to be okay with being uncomfortable when I don't 100% have it at work. So self-awareness, I think, can be so powerful when people notice not just what they're doing and checking boxes, but how they can notice that they're uncomfortable and how they can learn to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's where I think the real growth is. Yeah. Is hitting and one thing, is. yeah. One thing I was going to say about the self-awareness is it's very important to know when you're not functioning at your optimal state, when you know that, you know, I shouldn't be missing this deadline or, you know, this is not like me to be this forgetful. What's, what's off with me? You know, I need to get back to my kind of center state where I'm performing at an optimal level. You know, am I stressed? Am I not getting enough sleep? You know, whatever it might be. But if you're not aware when you're slowly drifting away, because what I've learned is that you don't find yourself miles away from your center. You slowly drift away. And many times that's because you don't have somebody holding you accountable or you're not linked with a group, accountability group or a therapist or whoever. Everybody needs somebody that's not just saying yes and agreeing with everything that you're doing, right? Everybody needs somebody to hold them accountable no matter what it is in your life, on your job, in your relationship. And if you don't have that accountability partner, that's how we see so many powerful people just get so far in left field and you know, like you're saying, how did they get here? Why didn't somebody help them? You know, but without being having that self-awareness, number one, to actually go to somebody and say, look, I am struggling. I need some help. Um, I think that's very important too. Absolutely. And we're used to thinking about, oh, my stomach hurts. I think I have a stomach ache. I my head hurts. Let me get some Advil and we'll easily be able to tell when, or more easily be able to tell when something's not right physically. But I've noticed that people beat themselves up when they're mentally not where they wanna be, or they're not meeting their goals in the either the timeline or the way that they think they should be. And instead of saying, let me see a doctor, let me get some Advil, it's there's something wrong with me and let me turn inward instead. So I 100% agree with you, community accountability and just knowing that it's okay to say that you're struggling or that it's a process, the more, it doesn't have to be a therapy office, whether mm. it's family, friends, church. Church, right. <laughs> yeah, there are so many other avenues just as long as you can have some of that vulnerability you don't need to sound like a therapist either like, let's really get right. into the feelings no 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 yeah. you can just be yeah. real with people 
Sure, sure. So let's talk about the expectations, the stress that we place on ourselves, especially as high achievers, you know, athletes, entrepreneurs, physicians, teachers, whoever it may be, but the stress that we place on ourselves based on others' expectations. I think when people are high achieving, there are kind of two paths that I see most often. One is I have to do the tried and true. I'm going to, so I'm not just going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a surgeon. And you know that path very well. So, right. And it's a long one with a lot of hoops, but that's just an example of there is this established benchmark of success and I'm going to meet it. And that means that you have to forego a lot of other decisions and opportunities for over a decade. And then there's Delayed the other. gratification. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and sometimes misery even on the way to Right, work. right. And then the other path that I see a lot is pressure to be exceptional in some way. Don't be a surgeon. That's, that's typical. We're artists. You should be exceptional. Your brother is an entrepreneur. Your grandfather was an inventor. Your mother's in the papers. Why can't you do the same? Even if that's never spoken when people come from high achieving families or, or sometimes, um, I mean, the pressure can come from so many places. If there aren't any high achievers in your family to really feel like you have to be the one, that's actually, I'd say even stronger pressure sometimes. But those are the two paths that I see. If I have to meet this established ben benchmark or I have to be exceptional, ordinary is not good enough. Yeah, man, I like the way you broke up those two because in my wife's interview, she talked about how being from inner city Baltimore, being the first person to graduate high school, go to college. And the fact that when she said she wanted to be a dentist, she said she felt like she had the whole pressure of the neighborhood on her back because she had to show everyone what was possible because no one else had seen it. And she knew that if she could do it and achieve it, other people would know that it was possible. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is growing up in a household of physicians or high achievers. And now you think, okay, if I'm going to be successful whatever success looks like and we talk about on this on this podcast success is different for everyone but many people uh, attribute a title to success not being whole or not being complete but in your chasing this title I saw many people in medical school that parents were physicians and you could tell from the beginning of the year that they were there, just there because granddad was a physician dad's a physician and that's what my family does. We're going into medicine, we become physicians. And you can see them struggle, you can see them burn out, and you can see them leave. Um, yeah, where there's somebody there. else, right. I mean, I saw people from Ivy League schools gone at Thanksgiving. And then you have this other person who fought their way to get into school and they excel because they have the hunger and the drive of I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to get through this because I don't want to go back to where I came from. Um, so it's definitely a different pressure um, based off of where you started, so to speak. Absolutely. But either way, the pressure can be really strong. And in order, it's a good thing sometimes to have blinders on when people mm -hmm. want to achieve a goal, like you said, delayed gratification. 
but it can be challenging for people when let's just say they are the product their success is the product that oh wow he made it to medical school but he didn't make it through it's like it doesn't count mm. oh wow you made it you are a, you're playing college basketball but you didn't get drafted to the nba so now what and there are so many more opportunities for high achievers i think to feel like they failed when they're just meeting marks that you know people with just more achievable goals see as a success if that yeah. makes sense yeah. but um the blenders can be helpful but it's also tough when other we don't just exist in a vacuum we exist in communities sure and having those goals can it does mean a sacrifice a lot of times in those other areas. Yeah. So from a therapeutic standpoint, how do you help somebody release themselves from others' expectations? What do you, what do you start with that? The Sabre training bat is like no other training bat you've ever used before. So the purpose of the Sabre training bat with its modified barrel is so that you can perfectly sequence and get behind the ball, getting the bat on plane sooner, creating less miss hits, more line drives, higher batting averages, and more exit velocity. The Sabre training bat is the number one training bat on the market. Sabre bats, the training bat that's gonna take you to your best swing. The first thing I like to do in a more conversational way, not like a bullet point list, but is to get a clear idea of what the expectations are and where they're coming from. So it is possible that someone feels the weight of the world on their shoulders and they have nine dependents, depending on their salary, that if their income has a 10% hit, that's a big deal. That's a very different story than someone who says, my company is, our revenue is down 10% and I'm a failure just because of that number. Um, whether it's coming from themselves, whether it's coming from their partner, whether it's coming from thinking of whatever glory days, I mean, I like to sometimes look at the workouts I could do in college and say, wow, that was amazing. I could do that. Right. And absolutely, whatever I do in the gym now would be an utter failure compared to that. But it's not a failure. But when you're comparing yourself to a past version of you or a version of you that didn't have any dependence, nobody depending on you. Well, yeah, it's, your landscape is going to look different. So yeah, that's so the first thing. Yeah. So what I heard, you know, as you were saying that I was thinking about being present, you know, so one affirmation that I do and that we do in my house is, you know, I'm at peace with my past, you know, I'm preparing for my future and I'm enjoying every moment of my presence. Um, because if you're not, if you're looking towards the future or if you're looking back, you can't be present and you can't, 
enjoy what you're doing now because worried so much about everything else, comparing yourself to your 21 year old self or comparing, you know, worried about where you're going to be at 60. I don't have enough savings. My, you know, portfolio is falling. So I'm worried about that instead of actually being present, you know, now. So. Absolutely. And sorry to answer the rest of your question. Yeah. What do I do? So the first thing is, yeah, just get a really good idea of where that's from. And then gently poking holes in the ones where you can tell this expectation is no longer serving you. Um, are you familiar with the Yerkes Dodson law or the Yerkes Dodson curve? No, no. It is uh, essentially just a, a bell curve that talks about the relationship between arousal and that could be stress it could be you know anything that makes us amped up and performance Mm -hmm. and there's a sweet spot so this applies to athletics this applies to really anything where there's performance involved but there's that on one end of the bell curve when we don't really care about something we're not really stressed out about it but we're not driven then to do something right like, oh, okay i'm not that stressed out there are dishes in the sink so the dishes aren't going to get done <laughs> yeah and ver- you know, versus okay i need to prepare for this job interview and the stress makes you have that drive to perform to prepare and everybody wants to have that optimal arousal at the top of the bell curve that game time feeling mm-hmm. and that would be amazing if we could all just live in that zone you know in that part of the bell curve but so easily it tips over into the part where it our performance goes down the more our stress goes up we've all been there where you have a deadline you feel like you're disappointing somebody you got rejected from something that it's hard to just well try you know just if you fail try try again it's really hard to do that next part but anyway, mm. where this goes with um, how this relates to your question, is, I tell people there is anxiety is doing its work. It's slowing you down. This is how it works. It's a human reaction. You're not doing anything wrong. But what would it be like if you could still keep the anxiety, keep the stress, whatever it is that propels you to succeed and turn down the volume on the part that's not serving you? So don't get rid of the anxiety. Keep it. You it means you care. Right. And there are a bunch of different ways to do that um, through different therapeutic techniques, kind of behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, and really just meeting people where they are. A lot of people come to see me because they want a therapist of color because therapy looks different you know, depending on who you are and who your therapist is. Sure. So it's so important to me that we're not talking like a bunch of therapists when we're doing right. this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and as you mentioned, representation matters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because so many people want to come to someone that they can feel comfortable with and that when they start to speak in a certain way, they're not being judged because of their cultural differences or they know that when they say a certain thing that you'll know exactly what they mean and not look at them like they have two heads. So the the fact that you are a minority in the field is very important as well. 
definitely changes uh, the dynamic sometimes and people changes in the sense that I have noted what I mean by that is people say, okay, I feel safer to say some of these things here. And certainly not all of my clients share my cultural background. Some do past and present, but um, especially when it comes to issues of racial discrimination or feeling othered or feeling gaslighted, like, oh, if I, I know this was racist, but if I speak up about it, then I'm going to be the person who's causing problems at the company. Right. And there isn't a quick fix to it, but I, I do, I do wish people knew that therapy was a place where you could talk about that without a therapist thinking you're the problem and you have to just roll up your sleeves and get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressure and especially now, not even wish we could say coming out of the pandemic, but still in a pandemic, right. two and a half years almost now. Um, so the, people have gone through a lot. And, you know, we talked about kind of consent and I didn't really sign up for this mentality or attitude before we started recording. Um, and that's a real thing right now, not only in medicine, but, you know, even in athletics, you know, people have seasons have been cut short, salaries are cut short, yes. entrepreneurs, short-staffed. I mean, wherever you go, we're hiring signs out, you know, prices of gas and just the feeling of, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I went to medical school. I went so I could take care of my family. I didn't go so I could sit behind a computer and, you know, fill out charts all the day, or I didn't go so I could, I'm a CEO. I shouldn't be doing the work of you know, the clerk or the work of a waiter, you know, so let's talk to people about that. I didn't really sign up for this mentality. And how do you deal with that? And how do you overcome that? So you can still be productive and not just be angry. A big part of it is acceptance and acceptance is different than just tolerating something. Accepting acceptance is accepting what is happening, just recognizing this is reality. This is where we are. Accepting also that you don't feel great about it. And really seeing what, ma what matters to me. I didn't sign up to be doing grunt work, but we're short staffed. I signed up to be a nurse so I could have great benefits, but I didn't sign up to be with rotating staff every day facing an incredibly deadly disease. I didn't mm. sign up to be on the front lines here. Um, and just really acknowledging that you don't feel good about it and also figuring out what matters to you. What is your value? Why are you going to continue to do this or not? Because it is important for people if they have choice to recognize that too. So an example is with, with a nurse who is happy to do his or her job, but they have an elderly parent at home. They have a kid who's immunocompromised. They are not really trying to sign up to put their loved ones in danger. And if your value is 
my value is safety. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And they can handle the income hit. Am I going to look for another? Am I going to look for a job where I'm sitting behind a computer all day charting remotely, even though I hate it? Right. If their value though is material wealth, then they are going to make that decision to go for the more dangerous but higher paying job. So that's, I think that's just really important for people to recognize what are my values that are guiding my choices in the areas that I have choice? Why am I doing what I'm doing if I don't really have a whole lot of choice? And just accepting kind of where you are because does sort of put it all together is my hope for people is that they can see that there is a bigger purpose to what they're doing. It's not just that they have to go to work. It's that they are choosing to provide for their family. And that's why they're getting that. And it, it doesn't have to be that you have to feel great to do that. Nope. If you feel anxious and angry, can those feelings come with you in the car to work? And are you able to focus on the present? Just like you said, that's kind of the number one thing. The idea of busyness, we all, um, we all have it when we think about what we're not doing. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, does All that right. make sense? I feel like I said a lot. Yeah, no, 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 it did. It did. Um, it did a whole lot. Um, because, like you mentioned, you have to use, when you're using your value system or basing your decisions off your value system, that really should give you comfort in knowing that whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it because of my value system. If I have to, change jobs because I know I'm putting my family at risk here. I should be able to find peace in that, you know, and many times you don't, you're just really a lot of actions. You're looking for peace or you're looking for somebody's approval when really it should be your own approval. Um, So yeah, no, that did help. Dr. Derek, you asked me earlier, uh, you know, why, what led you to starting your own practice, own company? So flexibility was the value that I get asked a lot. How do you do forensic psychology and sex therapy? And I realized I don't want to have to answer that question all the time. And I don't want to have to choose. Mm -hmm. And so flexibility, autonomy, growth, those are the values, which makes it easier when I see other people with my same credentials getting cushy jobs with stock options Mm. or working at a hospital with all kinds of paid time off. Like, okay. And it's tempting. It's certainly tempting. There's certainly some envy there, but I'm making this decision to work for me because these things matter. And it does make, it, it does make other options just take up less real estate in my mind. Sure, sure. So one thing that we talk a lot about is financial independence and being able to have freedom to be able to spend time with your kids and not have to work until you're 75 or 80 years old. So making early decisions so you can get that time freedom because I think one of the things now, this generation values ability to have freedom more so than in the past when it was okay to just work 110 hours a week as a surgeon and you know wife stays home and takes care of kids and 
kids know that dad's a doctor, so it's okay that he's not present. I think that's that's shift a lot in medicine, especially, um, especially now where quality of life is deemed more important. So absolutely. Yeah. And the gender breakdown in physicians graduating has right. changed so much. And absolutely. We're definitely at least in straight relationships, we're in a really, I'd say uncomfortable time with gender roles of trying to figure out how it works if everybody does everything. And mm-hmm. there's no perfect. So the old way wasn't great. The new way is still a work in progress. And that's something that comes up a lot in therapy of this feeling of unease or guilt or resentment of imbalance. You said before we started recording work-life balance, whatever that means can look so different to so many people. And there's no number there's no 50 50 is the thing you should aspire to but it's um all that means though is that people have to have so much more communication about what they're doing why what's the value what are we working toward here as a family we have to talk about all kinds of things that we never used to have to when there was an assumed way right right all right. So on timeout with the sports doctor, this is your final timeout. So, I mean, we've discussed a lot during this last 30 minutes or so, uh, but what I want to have you speak to that person who might've found something in this episode and they said, that's me, I need help. And for the first time, they might be able to see themselves in a mirror and actually say, I want to seek help. What's the first step to be able to say, I need help or who do I go to? I don't know anybody to go to. I don't have family that's going to listen to me because mental health is taboo, or I don't want to talk to my coworkers because I don't want it on my job. How do you advise someone in that situation? First of all, encourage people to listen to their gut, that if they know something isn't right, they've lived in their body and their mind for their whole lives. Nobody knows you better than you including any psychologist, psychiatrist, nobody knows you better than you. So trust your gut if you know that you're not feeling your best. And then the second thing is to consider what, who are safe people? Could it be your primary care doctor? Could it be a trusted coworker that, who has been open that they're in therapy? just to know that there are other people in your corner, if you choose. Some people want to keep it private, that's fine too. And there are great directories online of not just psychologists, but other people in mental health. So that those letters could look like LCSW, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, LPC, Licensed Professional Counselor, the letters will depend on your state, but all of those people are credentialed to be able to practice mental health in some way. So psychology today is a good one. And you can put in your insurance and your location. Most everybody offers telehealth right now. If you just need to do it from the safety of your car, that's the access has never been easier than it is right now. You don't need to go to an office. You don't need to be worried about seeing somebody else if you don't want to deal with that. So Psychology Today Open Path is another online resource that 
can link you to lower priced people, especially if you don't want to go through insurance or have that on your medical record anywhere. Um, therapists of color, that's another online resource for people who are looking for somebody who can, you know, where they don't just, they don't have to explain as much when somebody understands you from the jump. Mm. And it's never been easier than now to not right. be limited by geography. Sure. And also sure. don't feel pressure that you have to take medication. Are they going to give me pills? Unless that person is in psychiatry. So unless they're an MD, DO, or a nurse or PA, physician assistant, only those only medical providers can prescribe you anything. So right. you could talk to a psychologist for 10 years. So I guess some have prescribing privileges in some states. Okay. But you could talk to a mental health provider mm -hmm. and they will not be able to prescribe you anything. So it's not a direct ticket to taking meds. Sure. Sure. And I think that's important for many people to hear. Absolutely. One All right. Well, thing, um, yeah. Even if you're in front of somebody and they ask a question you're not comfortable with, you can say no. You don't owe it to them. Sure. Yeah. And that, yeah. That gives people a lot of freedom <laughs> knowing that you can say no. So, Absolutely. well, thank you, number one, for coming on. I know it's the end of your work day. And, yes. you know, thank you for spending this time. And I think that, well, I know that this is very valuable information. Um, and it's things that people need to hear and that people need to have more discussions about. Don't just leave it here uh, from listening to this episode, but we'll put those. Um, resources in the, in the show notes so you can follow up on it and tell people how they can follow you. Um, feel free to follow me on Twitter. It's my handle is at Mina Ratkalkar, M-I-N-A-R-A-T-K-A-L-K-A-R. And my website is newsparktherapy.com, N-E-W-S-P-A-R-K-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com. And you can find me there. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a blessing having you on and look forward to continue to work with you. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please give a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episode. Until later, peace. Trust, you don't want to miss, this is where life, sports, and medicine is.